We're continuing our study on discipleship or disciple-making, disciple-makers. And I, I am going to tell you up front this morning that um, as we look at discipleship, it may be in a way or a different perspective that you've never seen before and never thought about before. Um, and again, as I prayed, I hope that it would be an encouragement to us, but maybe even a, 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 a time of, of deeply thinking through what it means to be a disciple of Christ and a disciple of Christ. So, began our or began our series last week about disciple making, um, and we really all we did really look at was at our mission statement. We 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 did some work in in the gospel accounts. Um, our mission statement really is is the thrust of what we do here at King's Chapel. It's simply stated: we exist to glorify God. How by living on mission with Him. How do we do that? In making disciples through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. That was our mission statement. And we kind of looked at scripture. We kind of, we called it, you know, uh, I forgot what the name we called it last week. I, I don't keep track of titles. But the point was we have a new building but an old mission. Right? We have a new place to gather but we have an ancient story. And the story of God's mission. So we wanted to make sure we understood it. We celebrated the building. Great time with lots of people here. Um, and we just celebrated God's goodness to us. We want to remind ourselves, last, stay on mission. That's what it was. Staying on mission. How we are to stay on mission. We saw that last week. Um, we said it was important to realize that God has always been about declaring his glory. We see that throughout scripture. And that glory that he's declaring is for all the nations. We don't start in Matthew 28 and we talk about the Great Commission that God now is trying to make disciples, well not trying, but now God is going to make disciples what's called the Great Commission. But what I'd rather do and I've, I'd like to do is before we look at Matthew 28, which we will later on, to see the Great Commission, see the command of Christ, is really get a running start into the Great Commission, which began back in creation from the very beginning. That God was declaring his glory in all of creation. In fact, Genesis 1 and 2, we open it up, we see Adam and Eve were told to do what? To be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. They are to go out to fulfill the earth and subdue it and then take authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves. What we see in the beginning is that God gave them the command to rule over his creation, to multiply, to fill the earth, meaning they were to go, and as they were going, and they were having children and filling the earth, it was to, to manifest, to display, and reflect the glory of their creator God. Ultimately, all that God does, even creation, is for his own glory. He created us in relationship with him for that same end. Everything God does is to manifest and to display his glory. Even creation, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. But just to be really clear as we move forward talking about the glory of God as we get into discipleship, I want to make it really clear that God did not create us because he was dependent on us. He did not create the world because he was lonely. God is and always will be totally and completely satisfied in himself. But God, in love, chose to, to create us, to bear his image, to display his glory, and manifest his glory to the world. He's a creative God, in love, created us to display his glory. It is not out of emptiness or need, but out of fullness and goodness that God creates. But sin entered the world, we see in Genesis 3, and sin unraveled everything. And then sin caused man not only to rebel against God, but then to worship, to glorify 
created things. To worship and treasure and to praise other things. Remember we said that glory is something that we have our ultimate value in or something that means the most to us. I'll keep going in and out. Okay. I'll wait. My pack. I don't want a microphone because I can't talk with my hands cold or something. Okay. All right, we'll try that. So God's glory, and we talk about God's glory, is his infinite intrinsic value, all right? Uh, his, his beauty, his moral perfection, his greatness, his preeminence, his, his beauty, his unsurpassable worth and praise and majesty that he has in himself above all things, seen and unseen. Yet in spite of Adam and Eve's rebellion and how sin unraveled the world, God made a promise that although we were seeking to glorify other things, God made a promise that he was going to send the promised one. We saw that in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelism, the first gospel, the promise of the offspring who would destroy the work of the devil, destroy the enemy. He would defeat sin, conquer death, and he would crush the head of the enemy, Satan. And we see that's Jesus. And then that promise of the coming one, of the glory of the coming one, Continued through Noah, through the covenant made to Abraham, to the nation of Israel, through the prophets and the kings. Especially that prophet, excuse me, the promise, the covenant promise made to King David. In fact, that's the whole story of the Old Testament, pointing to the promised one. And if you've been here at all through the series of Isaiah, you'll notice and you will know that God has over and over and over and over again in Isaiah declared that the promised one would come, the Messiah would come, the suffering servant would come, the king of kings would come, and he would what? He would bring glory to the earth, he would fulfill the covenant promise, and he would display his glory to all the nations. We saw that so often. So when we talk about discipleship or disciple making, it is paramount, I believe, to see two things. Number one, we are joining God, what God has been doing from the beginning. Family, that's important. I want us to hear through the centuries through the thousands of years, this drumbeat beating throughout history, throughout creation, that, that dealt with the fall and the consequences of sin, that God is a missionary God throughout history seeking to save men and women, to have a relationship with them. All the nations, from the very beginning. In fact, if you turn to the Gospel according to John, interesting, we went through that Gospel account a few years ago, but John, when John is recording for us, the ministry of Jesus, earthly ministry of Jesus. He puts the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2. Sometimes everything's not chronological. They're giving stories about Jesus. He puts it in chapter 2, right before chapter 3, where Jesus meets a religious man named Nicodemus. He is the ruler of the council, or one of the Jewish rulers. John 2 Clearing of the temple before John 3, meeting Nicodemus, and before John 3, 16, that famous verse. What we see in John 2 is Jesus is angry, he walks in the temple, and he clears the temple. He's throwing tables and chairs. It wasn't simply because they were selling animals, exchanging, uh, exchanging money for animals for the Passover. God told them to do that in his law. He gave the men and women of, of Israel the permission to come from a long distance to this mandatory feast, the Passover, and to bring money to exchange the money, the currency for the animal, and then sacrifice for the yearly Passover celebration. 
The main issue was that they had set up their store, this currency, the sale of animals, in the court of the nations. That when God built and told them how to build the temple, he had a special place for the court of the nations. If the religious leaders of the day understood, were paying attention, attention to what God was doing from creation, they would have known that the Messiah was going to come, not just for them, but for all the nations. But they chose the place where the nations would gather to seek the Lord, to pray to the Lord, to come to the place where God dwells. They chose that place to set up Walmart. That is why Jesus was astonished that Nicodemus, a religious leader, did not understand that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, must be born again before they can enter the kingdom of God. But God said that God so loved the world. This is in John 3, in John 2, you see the nation here, John 3, he loved the world, that's whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus came not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved, what? Through him. So the first thing we need to recognize, we talk about discipleship and what God is doing on mission, is that he's been doing this from all eternity. All that he does is for the manifestation of his glory. God deferred his anger in Isaiah 48 for the glory of his name. God chose his people in Ephesians chapter 1 for the glory of his name. God created us for his glory, Isaiah 43. God called Israel for his glory, Isaiah 49. God rescued Israel from Egypt, Psalm 106. I go on and on. God restored Israel from exile for his own glory, Ezekiel. Jesus sought the glory of the Father in all that he did, John 7. I mean, go on and on and on. John, Jesus said that the answer he that he answers prayer, that God would be glorified. Romans, Paul says, everything that happens will rebound to the glory of God. To the glory of God. This is not some, this is not some puny kind of add-on, some insignificant purpose that's somehow filed with other purposes of our life and our church. This is the grand, eternal, and ultimate purpose of God, the displaying of his glory. That's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all what? For the glory of God. And I think sometimes we don't evangelize or we're not living in, 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 out as disciples. Maybe it's because we, we don't see it and we don't understand the, the magnitude and the, and the grand picture and the purposes of, etern, of, of our eternal God. That our creator, our creator God has called us, his people, to join him on his eternal purposes by manifesting and displaying his greatness and his glory and his beauty and his, his insurmountable worth to the nations, to everyone. Your personal story and your testimony, my personal story and testimony, our collective story really has no eternal significance unless it is rooted and found in the one true eternal story of all humanity, and that is our God. And the good news is passed on. It's, it's spread throughout the world. It's proclaimed, and we live it in the story. And I think if we see ourselves in that perspective... As, as, as God's missions unfolding in our lives, unfolding in our churches, I think that we can roll up our sleeves and be excited about what God is doing. I've said this before. If, 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 if living on mission 
making disciples, the spreading and declaring of God's glory is, is, is simply just mandated, which it is. But if that's all there is, we miss the point. We miss the joy of it all. So here's my point. Number one, the mission, the goal, the aim of God is to manifest and display his glory to the world, and it's an ancient story. Number two, God's glory is ultimately seen, displayed, and treasured where? In the person and work of Christ. We mentioned this last week. Also in John chapter 2, interesting story. In John chapter 2, Jesus did his first miracle. Remember what it was? Turned water into wine. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, this was the first of his signs. There's eight or nine of them throughout the gospel account. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested what? His glory to his disciples and they believed in him. God has always been about proclaiming his glory. And there is no greater place in the universe, I mentioned this last week, where the infinite glory was manifested, displayed, and demonstrated than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life and his death. It is where the infinite love of God, the mercy of God, meets the holy justice of God. Sin, rebellion, justice is satisfied, a holy God, a judge, just like a, holy, uh, just like a just judge. Punishment of sin on the cross, yet love and grace and mercy extends to sinners like you. That's what the cross is. That's what the cross is all about. Justice being served, Holiness of God being upheld and, and love and grace extended to those who will turn from their sin. Now, I mentioned last week, we're talking about the glory of God uh, being the gospel, being the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 4. Let me read it again. In their case, the God of this world, that's unbelievers, is blind the minds of unbelievers. How do they blind them? How are they being blind? They, they're being kept from what? Seeing the light of the gospel, the good news of Christ, the work of Jesus, of the glory of Christ, right? All that he did, who is the image of God. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts, believers now, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He's doing everything for his own glory in the face, in the person, in the work, in the presence of Jesus Christ. Glory of God manifested, displayed in the work of Jesus, in the person and work of Jesus. Now I want to add Ephesians to this verse. Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul says our salvation, our adoption came to us by his predetermined will, so that praise will come out and the ultimate praise of his glorious grace toward us. It even says he planned it. That grace would be the manifestation, the ultimate manifestation and display of his glory through all creation. And the ultimate aim of predestination, salvation, is to live to the praise of the glory of grace. Look what it says in this verse, through Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's no other place in all of creation that God's grace is displayed more than in the person and the work of Jesus who is the gospel. 
Jesus Christ, who is the gospel, is the infinite glory of God embodiment. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the grave display the intrinsic and value God of God. His worthiness, his greatness, his supremacy, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection, his love, his insurmountable worth is found in Christ. You see, the Old Testament, we saw this in Isaiah, was pointing to the person and work of Christ, the glory of Christ through shadows and prophecy. Now, the New Testament reveals to us the glory of Christ in the person of Jesus. John opens up that way in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh as Jesus dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. We have seen what? His glory. Glory as the only Son. Remember, Isaiah said, the glory he'll share with no one. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, following me? So here's my premise. The work of God to manifest and to display his glory and the command to make disciples of Jesus Christ are the same. Or we could say they are inseparably linked together. Because when Jesus said, I've come to save the lost, he is fulfilled. The ancient story, the great commission that was the promised son that would come to get glory. And God is supremely interested in getting his glory. We saw that all over scripture. And he's chosen to do it by forgiving a people, by washing them of their sins, by graciously forgiving them, freeing them, so they could start being what they were called to be from the beginning, from the original creation, God-glorifying saints. Therefore, the ultimate purpose of disciple-making is the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of disciple-making is the glory of God. Others will see, will treasure, will drink deeply of the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of Christ. Escape eternal death, escape eternal wrath, and have relationship with their God. With that mission, and uh, that ancient mission and glory of God as our foundation, let's look, at, let's look a little bit what a, what, what a disciple is. Let's look a little bit, let's, let's think through what is discipleship according to Jesus. Okay? Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's why they're by the sea. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and what did they do? They followed him. Mark 1.15, Jesus shows up on the scene, the gospel according to Mark. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and what? Believe the gospel. The king has come. Repent and believe in Christ. The first thing we see about discipleship, very clearly in these texts, is it simply means to what? Follow Jesus. You're thinking, wow, that's not that hard to figure out. Okay. What does that really mean? In fact, in Jesus' day, he didn't, his call to make disciples not like it's never been done before. It was done many times in Jesus' day. And they would call people, young boys especially, to attach themselves to a rabbi, to a teacher. He would identify with him. He would learn from him, he would live with him, and he wouldn't just learn from him, he would learn by doing with his teacher. In fact, Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus called his disciples, and so that they would, might be with him, so he could teach them, and he would send them out to preach, so they 
proclaim what Christ has told them, teach, to teach others. And it says, and then he gave them what? All gave them authority to cast out demons. So come with me so you can spend time with me and then I could teach you and then go and teach others and I've given you this authority to cast out demons. Well, in Jesus' day, the rabbis would, most of the time the young men would, would, would want to attach themselves to a rabbi and to a teacher and they would, they would ask to be one of the disciples and one of the requirements was that they, this, this would-be disciple would be under the discipleship of a teacher or a rabbi and he would have to accept the fact that this rabbi has authority over him. That he would, he would learn the Torah, he would learn the Old Testament law, he would learn what it means to live a righteous life, to what, what God approves, what God doesn't approve, through the submission to the authority of the rabbi as he is the, the disciple. So when Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, it's not new. Only the fact that Jesus has all authority of heaven and earth. But they're expected to go. And we piggyback on that authority when we go, right? The authority of Christ. I think sometimes, and you guys can share about this in your community groups, I think sometimes in our day we distinguish between and we separate between being a Christian and, and being a disciple or follower of Christ. In the New Testament, there's no such distinction. In Acts chapter 14, it says Paul and his crew in his missionary trip, they had preached the gospel to the cities, proclaiming repent and turn, just what Jesus did, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and at, and had made many disciples. So you see the, the preaching of the gospel, people respond to the gospel, and now they are, what, disciples. And then it says that after the disciples were made through the preaching of the gospel, that Paul and his crew went back and, and, and encouraged and strengthened the souls of the other disciples as they went back through the cities. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, when Barnabas and Paul went to Antioch, it says they were there for a year, they met with the church, and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christ followers. I think it's unfortunate that we've watered down what it means to be a disciple by, by defining it simply by something we believe. In other words, some people call themselves a Christian simply because they acknowledge the truth about God, the truth, even the truth about the cross and resurrection the person of Christ. Unfortunately, James chapter 2 tells us that there are those who say, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. The faith of demons, James says, is useless. Even though they tremble because they know the truth. In the context of James, that there are those who are saying, I believe, I have faith, but there was no evidence of their faith. They're on the level of belief, that which is similar to demons. Unfortunately, the reason there's no evidence is because they weren't truly following, learning, and submitting to the authority of Christ, doing what Christ commands. Now, when we into being a Christ follower, but when there's been genuine repentance and the following of Jesus, life's going to change. You were going in one direction, now you're following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So therefore, the works and the change of life becomes part of, or at least comes through our faith, right? We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. The faith that saves alone is never alone. There, there's a change, there's a transformation, all of grace. 
Calling ourselves, oh, I'm a Christian, doesn't necessarily make us disciple if true conversion hasn't happened and we have not made a commitment to follow Jesus. That's what I'm saying. That's what the scriptures say. Look at this verse. You may have, some of you may have never, ever heard of this verse. Luke chapter 14, we're going to get there. We're doing the gospel according to Luke. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he, Jesus, turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, hate his own mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus commands us, Love your wives. Children, honor your parents. Love is a mark of a disciple. So we can't take this obviously literally. Jesus was using hyperbole. What Jesus means by hate is to place everyone else at such a distant second in priority related to him that it seems that you hate them by comparison. That our love of self, our family, pales in comparison is subordinate to our love and commitment to Christ. All other relationships take second place. You see, discipleship will force us to reprioritize everything in ways that are completely contradictory to the world's systems. Now, this passage is difficult. Struggle with, with it as you may and I may. But it doesn't change what Jesus says. We can't overlook it. So a disciple is someone who responds to the call to follow Jesus, repenting and believing in the gospel, and, and placing him at the top priority. It is a call to follow. It means to, to transfer the authority of your life to him, to, to, to transfer the lordship of your life to him, to transfer the desires and the purpose of your life to him. That's the call of discipleship. That's the call of the gospel. Mark chapter 8. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Disciples of Christ are called to deny themselves, to lose their life for Christ and the gospel. Now, it's interesting to note, and let me just note this here, the word life in our text is not the Greek word, not the Greek word bios, which means, you know, uh, physical life, the study of, you know, biology, the study of living things, is the word suke. And what Jesus is saying, suke is where we get the word psychology, personality, emotions, personhood, identity, it, it, what makes us distinct individuals, um, distinct and valuable as people. Jesus is, is not saying, I want you to lose the sense that you have an individual self. That's part of our imago Dei. That's part of who we are. What Jesus is saying is, don't build your suitcase, your identity, your personhood, your identity on the things of this world. In fact, if you do, what would profit a man? To gain the whole world, he would what? Forfeit his soul. Every culture looks at something and says, I got to have it. I got to gain this. If I have that, I'll be somebody. Right? I'm valuable. I, I have identity. I have value. I have purpose. I have meaning. I have personhood. I feel fulfilled. And no matter what it is, Jesus is saying, if you're chasing after the things of the world, you can't be my disciple. You're actually forfeiting your soul. And I think the question for us this morning is, what, are we, what, 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 what is it in your life that we're building our identity on, building our personhood on, building our suke on? 
Or what is it that threatens you? Sometimes that shows us too what we're building on if something was taken from us. Could it be the gaining or losing of a certain relationship, husband, wife, girlfriend, children, careers, prestige, money, power, being liked? If you have it, you're somebody. If you lose it, you're not just disappointed, you disintegrate. Listen carefully. What Jesus is saying is being my disciple means to find a whole new way of life. I want you to lose the old self and base your life, base your personhood on me and the gospel. Says in Colossians 3, for you have died and your life is what? Hidden with Christ. Hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who, who is your life, Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Being a follower of Christ, being a disciple, responding to the gospel changes everything about who you are. And who I am. Change the very core of our life. It's now centered on Christ. It's not just a personhood change, but look what it says. It's a purpose change too. For my sake and the gospel, he says. New purpose. The demonstrating, declaring of the gospel. The missio day. Take up your cross, he says, and follow me. Now, when he says take up your cross, he's not talking about that, that knucklehead boss you have. Or the mother-in-law that gives you a hard time. My mother-in-law was wonderful, by the way. No, he's talking about walking in Jesus' footsteps. The cross we bear is, is, is what Paul's talking about, or what Jesus is talking about, is specifically walking and following in Christ's footsteps, following him, embracing his life, and all that his life and following him brings into your life. It is a willingness to endure persecution, rejection, reproach, shame, suffering, even martyrdom for the sake of his name and for the glory spread of the gospel. If our life, if our identity, if our purpose is to do what we want and to try to get what we want, can we really call ourselves a disciple of Christ? A follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, changed the very core of who we are. And his purpose in life now is to be like him, to do what he is doing. That's what it means. Let's talk about the process a little bit. Let's talk about what a disciple is. But what's the process? In other words, how do we transfer that personhood? How do we change our purposes? How do we submit to the authority of Christ? How, we, how do we really commit? And what does it look like really to follow him? What does this lifelong process look like? Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I've commanded you, and I am, be and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Many of you know this, but there's one command in that passage. There are participles. What does it look like to fulfill the command? But there's one command in that passage, and it's not go. It's make disciples. That's the imperative to make disciples until I come. As you go, make disciples. Not bigger buildings, although we have one, and I'm glad we do, but that's not the purpose. Not, to, not, not even at, at first to, to pray more or build bigger programs. Good stuff. Go and make disciples. Call people to repentance. Call people from sin. Turn to Jesus. Follow him. Live for him and love him and walk with him. That's the call. Discipleship is, just, is more than just acknowledging. It is, it is to know everything about the teacher, yes, but it means to, to create a duplicate. 
Not just someone who agrees intellectually, but being transformed by Jesus himself, being an imitator and mimicking his life. And the participles here tell us how to do that. As you are going, we're going to talk about that more next week, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that he commands. So the work of making disciples is, is preaching the gospel, seeing conversions, and then baptizing followers and teaching these baptized followers to, to, to follow and to obey the, all the commands of Christ himself that Christ has given. Now, it brings us to baptism. Matthew 28 is very clear. The first instruction to the discipleship process is to make disciples of all nations and then baptize them. Baptize them. Baptism points to a moment in time when a person confirms to the community they've turned from sin and self and to embrace Jesus Christ, to love him, to worship him, and to walk with him by grace, all a matter of grace. It is, a, it is, a, it is a, a, an outward expression of an inward faith. It was given to people, given to the church, a way for, the, for people to proclaim their faith. I trust Christ. I'm identifying with his death in my place, his burial in my place, his resurrection in my place, and I'm identifying with his church as well, with the people of God. We'll talk more again about this next week, but there is no such thing in the discipleship process as Lone Rangers. I'll tell you that right now. We need the body. We need the community. We need one another. You can't be a disciple and a Lone Ranger at the same time. You've got to be part of the body. In fact, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches. 2,000 people come to faith. What does he do? He, he, they say they added the numbers. They added them to the numbers. In other words, there was a group of people, and it says they baptized them. We're under the commands of Christ to be baptized. Here in King's Chapel, we believe baptism taught in Scripture is very clear. It happens after your conversion, after your profession, after you become a disciple, just what Jesus said here. And I have to be honest with you, if you're a follower of Christ and you claim to be a disciple of Christ and you have not been baptized, there are two options. And I'm not here to judge. You think about it. You, you pray about it. You seek the Lord on it. Either you're not a disciple of Christ, so you don't really care about baptism. You just call yourself a Christian. Or you're in rebellion, and that's a bad place to be. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. It just so happens we're having one next Sunday. Talk to me after the service. Go online on our website. Fill out the form. I'll get a hold of you. If you've never been baptized, you're a follower of Christ. This is his first command, to be baptized. Okay? To be baptized. Next, Jesus wants us to teach, what? His ways, to observe all that he's commanded you. So making disciples is about coming to faith and walking to faith. It's about birth and growth. It's about opening doors and walking the journey. It's about learning and doing. It's outward and inward transformation. So we talk about this process. I'm reading a book recently. I, I highly recommend it. It's called Disciple Shift. It's by Jim Putnam and uh, Bobby Harrington. Disciple Shift. S-H-I-F-T. And he says there's three components, and we're going to talk about two of them today, and then we'll deal with the ones next week. There's three components in the process of disciple-making. He says the three, the three are this, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. The Word and the Spirit. We'll talk about the people, we'll talk about the gathering of God's people and the scattering of God's people next week. Let me just talk about these two things quickly, the Word of God and the, and the uh, Spirit of God. Jesus made it very clear that the process of following him as his disciple is to recognize and submit to the authoritative word of God. Jesus made it clear in his high priestly prayer 
that the followers of Christ would be sanctified by the word, John 17. They, his disciples, are not of this world, just that I, just I'm not of this world. Sanctify them by the truth. Set them apart, for your word is truth. As you sent me, send them into the world on mission, and for their sake I consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. In other words, God says, listen, Jesus is saying, look, I pray for my disciples, I pray that they would know the truth, they would read the word, they would know the word, and that the word of God would bring sanctification, would, would transform them into the image of Christ and propel them on mission. John 8, 31, very clear. I, you can't get any more clear than this. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Disciple-making process in the Word. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving to your heart to God. Jesus himself, I believe as a young boy, read his Bible. I don't think he had like God just opened his brain one day when he was 13 and poured the Word in. Although he was, he, he was there when the word was written, he is part of the process, right? He is God. But as a young boy, he read the word. In fact, when, when temptation came to him by Satan in the wilderness, we know that the word of God came back with the word, came back with the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, he said, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus in his humanity studied, read, and knew the word of God. He used the word of God as a, used the, the promises of the word of God and used it when he needed it most. A disciple feeds on the teaching, commands, instructions of Christ. So Jesus says, after they come to faith, this lifelong process of teaching them to know the word of God. And he's, look what he says here. To observe, to keep all that I've commanded you. Interesting word. We talked about it in our community group. Observe. That, that, that's not the normal word for obey. Some of your translations has obey. Um, some, some have observe. And that word means to guard. To guard, to keep an eye on, to watch, to observe attentively, to keep fixed upon for the purpose of obeying. And that nuance, we shouldn't lose that nuance. We are to watch and we are to guard all that Christ commanded us. And if we honor God's word, if we, we submit to God's word, we will honor and cherish it. So let me ask you, Christ followers, are, are you submitting to the word of God? Are you reading God's word? Are you being taught from God's word? Are you, or are you being led astray? We saw it in Colossians by worldly philosophies. Our authority comes from the word. And yet many, again, I'm not judging. You be your judge. You let the spirit of God, let God talk to you. There are those who call themselves Christians who want nothing to do with the word of God. They don't read it regularly. There's no desire. There's no willingness to submit to its commands, its promises. And you got to ask yourself, as Paul would say, examine yourself. That's, that's, the, that's the call. That's the warning that I believe God would want. Examine yourself. The Word of God is the way to teach and learn and grow in our personal relationship with Christ. And lastly, you got the Word of God, now the Spirit of God. Ladies, I know you're studying Galatians chapter 5. You see the work of the Spirit in your life. And I use the word uh, fruit, singular. Again, you probably learned that already. It, it is a way in which God works in our lives to produce that life of Christ in us. 
And, and, and one of the ways I think that we can get trapped as we walk, depending on what circles you ran in or what church you grew up in, one of the things that we can get trapped is, into as we talk about discipleship is a, a religious mindset. In other words, I, I need to obey myself into a right relationship with God. And we think that, that all that transforming process really has to do with me and it's completely on my shoulders. Right? That's not the case. Right? It is the Spirit of God who does the work of God, transforming the lives. John 15, Jesus said, you want to bear fruit? you got to remain in me. John 16, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come, the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and he will reveal it to you. And he will what? Glorify me. Christ invites us to come. Now, and, and, and there's a balance. We talk about the Spirit of God. There's a balance, right? Our will, our, our decision-making has to be submitted to the Word of God, to the Spirit of God. We need to yield to the Spirit. We need not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. That's all what Scripture teaches us. Second Peter says this, that we are to make every effort to supplement our faith. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, manifest. And even though we are involved in the process, family, we have to recognize that we cannot and will not do it outside the work of the Spirit of God who points us to the glories of Christ. We just can't do it. So, here at King's Chapel, one of our core value is identity. The transforming work of the gospel. We believe that we apply the gospel to our lives. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Maybe we'll, we'll pick that up. Let me, let me call the band up. I want to wrap it up, and we'll talk more about the, the, the Spirit of God working in our lives next week. Let me, let me say this as we wrap it up. Discipleship 101. Discipleship 101. God is all about the spreading of His glory. The purpose of discipleship is the glory of God. Spreading his glory to all the nations. From the very beginning of creation, all that he does, the aim and the goal of all that he does is his good pleasure and his glory that is seen and displayed. The purpose of discipleship is the spreading of the glory to all the nations. The spreading of his glory to all the nations and the person of discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ where his glory is seen, treasured and valued, his incalculable worth is manifested and displayed and treasured in the person and the work of Christ. And it begins through the preaching of the gospel, the call to, to, to leave your sin, to walk with Jesus, to follow him every day of your life, to bring him glory in all that you do, through repentance and faith, and we are then called in the process of being baptized, and learning and growing and, and submitting to the word, relying upon the spirit. And we'll see this next week, living in community, both for the gathering and the scattering for missions. So family, let me ask you, are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a follower of Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Have you really trusted Christ? Or are you just here going along with the program? It is the call of Jesus to repent and turn and to follow him. To believe that he died in your place. To believe that he paid the penalty for your sin. To believe himself that you deserve and then rose victorious over this grave. And he's coming back again. Let us stand together as we pray. Father, 
Your greatest goal and aim is the display of your glory. And when your people give you glory, we are filled with insurpassable joy. Help us, God, to see what Christ is calling us to. And although we will never live it perfectly, but our heart and our goal and our aim is to walk with Jesus and to bring glory to you. Father, I pray, we pray that your spirit will work right now in our hearts as we respond, as we sing, Christ is all. Is all. He is everything that we would relinquish our wills over to you and define ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.